Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. In the long term, immigration is healthy for any society. And in the short term, it's really hard. And I think that's the way we can have better conversations about this. As you were saying, Sarah, we have to acknowledge some of those fears and some of those insecurities. We also have to take a look at our infrastructure. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Nuance Nation is officially in progress. We kicked off the tour this weekend in California. So if our words are a little slow today, it's because we've crossed some time zones, and that is always a struggle bus. But the events themselves honestly left me feeling inspired, empowered. I could get a little teary with how wonderful it was to meet all y'all in person and your stories. It was a lot. It was a lot in the best possible use of that term. 
I totally agree. And we would love to see many of you at our next stop in Michigan. You can find tickets for our Michigan and Louisville stops on our website right now. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. But listen, you have to come because watching Mm -hmm. listeners meet each other was as much fun as watching them meet us. We signed books. We took pictures with everybody who came. We had Q&A that was fantastic. And our guests could not have been better. Special thanks to the Reverend Dr. Penny Nixon, who joined us in San Mateo, and to actor and activist Piper Parabo and Swing Left co-founder and chief marketing officer Michelle Finaki. We could not have asked for more rich and interesting conversations with truly inspiring people. So you don't want to miss it. Representative Haley Stevens will be with us in Michigan and candidate for the United States Senate. Amy McGrath is going to be with us in Louisville and it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, the awesome guest that that train's just picking up steam. Let me tell you, we have such exciting events planned. We hope to have the tickets for Dallas and Washington, D.C. up soon because you Dallas people are clearly early birds. And we're getting a message today, like a message every day, like, hey, you got the tickets for Dallas for sale yet? What about those tickets for Dallas? What about those tickets for Dallas? I and love I just it. I love your enthusiasm. You, there's a little section of what we're going to talk about in our Democracy 2.0 section that is just made for Texas. You're going to love it. Oh, Lord, Lord. They're going to freak out. OK, let's get to the news. The president has been busy, although busy implies action as opposed to just creating chaos with your words and tweets. To be fair, travel is active, as we have just experienced. So going to a place mm -hmm, does have mm -hmm, an element mm -hmm. of busyness in it. The place the president has gone is the G7. Just a quick refresher on what that is, because I think it's so confusing with international coalitions of countries, like what's happening here. So the G7 is the group of seven. It is an international economic summit held by the countries with what the International Monetary Fund describes as the largest advanced economies in the world. And that basically means industrialized democracies. So China is not part of the G7. These countries together hold 58% of all the world's wealth, and that's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US, and then the EU has a representative there as well. So they meet up, they have a little get-together every once in a while, and I got to tell you, so this one is in France, but it feels like even if it wasn't in France, President Macron of France had a game plan, and he is really, he's, he's taking the reins. Does it feel like he's taking the reins a little bit to you? I think that is one of the biggest takeaways from what's transpired at the G7 so far. It ends as we are recording. So there may be pieces that come out tomorrow that we'll cover on the Nightly Nuance or on Instagram in the news briefs. But right now, to me, Emmanuel Macron deciding, you know what, the rest of the world cannot wait for the United States, is the headline. To get their stuff together. Mm -hmm. So the first thing he did is said, we're not going to sign anything. So he took that bargaining chip away immediately. So you can't come here and hold us all hostage with whether or not you're going to sign something because we're not signing anything, big guy. So I love that. Thought that was really strong. And when I heard this, I was like, what? What? So they're at the G7. They're all rolling into this little French beach town with their big O security jets. And then another giant jet, an eighth giant jet rolls in. Everybody's like, what's the G7? Who's the eighth one? And Macron's like, oh, I didn't tell you. 
I invited Iran's foreign minister to meet with us in Germany and the UK. I, I, did I forget to mention that? That is a, is that, is a very, there's a bold move. It's a bold move. There's been conflicting reporting. The president said he knew about it and had blessed it. And other outlets are saying he was totally blindsided by it. Be that as it may, this really highlights the fact that the United States is being marginalized in these discussions because the president was unwilling to meet with Iran's foreign minister. He says it's too soon, but eventually we'll have a great conversation and we'll strike a new deal and we'll make Iran wealthy again after they stop supporting international terrorism. Meanwhile, European countries are saying it's getting scary out here with Mm -hmm. Iran choosing to violate the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with the United States blowing that agreement off. We need to get together and figure out where we're going here. And so I think Macron was right to do this. And as an American, I feel terrible about it. I'm just embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by how he has behaved at these meetings in the past. That has led to the point where basically we get treated like the behavioral problem that we are, it's embarrassing and it's creating instability. His tweets about the economy, this I hereby order all companies to take their business out of China, the, oh, I'm going to escalate the trade, the tariffs, we're going to increase the tariffs. Oh, then he gets asked at the G7, are you having second thoughts? And he's like, sure, yeah, why not? The why not is particularly galling to me because the, the the whole point of the G7, right, is that the globe, both with regards to matters of security and with regards to matters of the economy, thrives on stability. And I know that it is appealing on a certain level to have somebody coming in and shaking things up and creating chaos. But we are seeing the long-term impact of that chaos. And we are seeing how so often things thrive on stability and that you cannot detach the economy from security and that you cannot say, well, I'm just going to burn it all down and think that there won't be impacts with regards to our alliances, with regards to the sharing of intelligence, with regards to our national security, the global security. It's just so frustrating. You know, there are lots of valid criticisms of the G7. It does feel to me that member countries, aside from the United States, have started asking harder questions at these summits at a time when we are less inclined to engage with difficult issues. So normally, the G7 concludes in a communique being released that says, here are all the things we discussed and are working toward. And in recent years, those communiques have been extremely wide-ranging and have talked a lot about the fact that seven countries hold 58% of the world's wealth. And what obligations does that create in these countries? And what does that mean for us with respect to violence against women all over the world? What does it mean with respect to the environment? And America has been less inclined to ask those hard questions during the Trump administration, and it is sidelining us. Case in point, one of the most urgent issues addressed at this G7 has been the fires in the Amazon. Sarah covered this on Instagram on her news brief. As I'm sure you've heard, we have an 85% increase in forest fires in the Amazon, and the Amazon is critical to the entire globe in terms of oxygen production. 
So the G7 countries agreed to a $20 million aid package to help with the fires. I'm no expert. I'm thinking $20 million is going to be a little short of what's needed to deal with this crisis. But there is an aid package. They also came to an agreement in principle with countries on the Amazon basin for a long-term program to protect the forest and to do reforestation. But all of this conversation took place during a session on climate, oceans, and biodiversity that President Trump skipped. A member of the Trump administration was there, but it was not the president. This session included countries who are not G7 members, and the pressure from the G7 helped get Brazil's president to send troops to the Amazon, 43,000, to help combat the fires. Really important work is being discussed at these meetings, and America is is not meaningfully at the table for that work. The important contrast that is becoming clear to me is between leadership and grassroots. Because I understand, based on past things I've said on this podcast, including one of my favorite hashtags, burn it down, that it sounds hypocritical for me to be saying, oh, we need stability. But there are two different things. We do need stability in our global leadership. And that is compatible with passionate, energetic, strong demands for change from the grassroots. Both those things can exist at the same time. You can be responsive to institutional problems. You can make big procedural changes and still have a stability in the leadership at the very top. I really believe you can do both things. I believe as Americans, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can say things aren't working. This isn't working. This isn't serving everyone. And we need to make big changes and not be this global, chaotic disruption when we already have enough global problems that are really going to affect the security and stability of our economy and our country. And so I just, I think it's important to draw that distinction and say, we can have both at the same time. One more headline that's being reported out of the G7 is that the prime minister of India rejected President Trump's offer to mediate India's dispute with Pakistan. (laughs) Can't imagine why. The more important aspect of that story is that India believes that this is a bilateral dispute, that what's happening in Kashmir is just between India and Pakistan. The rest of the world does not have a role to play. And Pakistan's prime minister told The New York Times that all of his efforts to reach out to India to discuss this diplomatically have failed and Mm. that he's finished. He said there's no point in talking to them, meaning India. I mean, I have done all the talking. If it is a bilateral issue, there's no bilateral talks happening. And I find it really difficult to believe that what is happening in Kashmir will stay between the countries of India and Pakistan. I would like to see more reporting on that. You know, the president made a big deal out of the way the G7 was covered in the media and has said all kinds of ridiculous things about that coverage and about what other world leaders are talking to him about. I want to just put all that on a shelf and say, while I think it is important to understand the way 
Donald Trump behaves at these events, there is more important stuff going on. That's why Emmanuel Macron is taking the reins here. And I would like to see more focus on that. And I think in particular, I don't care that Donald Trump offered up being a facilitator of discussions and was rejected. I care that those discussions aren't happening. What we're seeing here is the impact and consequences, I believe, of the gutting of the State Department and just total abandonment of America's role in these global disputes. Look, I don't work for the State Department. I've never worked for the State Department. There are entire aspects of the Foreign Service that I just don't understand. But what I do know is that when I look around right now, when I look at Kashmir, when I look at Israel and Palestine, when I look at Iran, when I look at North Korea, when I look at South Korea and Japan— What I see is what happens when we abandon our role as a global peacemaker, as a global negotiator, as a global mediator. We do that work, and we have done it for decades, and we don't notice it until it's gone, right? It's that the positive impact of that work goes largely unnoticed, But, man, are we seeing it now. I mean, we all remember those stories about Rex Tillerson and that they were gutting the State Department and they were abandoning all this and there's nobody filling these spots. And I truly believe we're seeing the impact of that now. And I would not characterize it as gone because there are lots of dedicated diplomats all over the world doing their very best. I would say that it has become infinitely harder for those people because of the way the top levels of the administration treat diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's important here to note that Mike Pompeo has not improved this problem substantially from what I see. Mm -mm. And I hate the idea that Mike Pompeo is hanging out trying to decide whether he wants to go run for the Senate or what his next political aspirations are when I think his tenure as the secretary of state is so problematic and so unsuccessful. The idea that his star is on the rise when we're doing so poorly in circumstances like the G7 really offends me. That might be a good transition to compliments, though, because I hate to end on a criticism of someone before we move on to our main segment. So, Sarah, who do you have in mind to compliment this week? In words I never thought I'd say. I'd like to compliment Joe Walsh, who I actually thought was the guy who yelled at Obama, but it wasn't. And then I confused him for Mark Sanford. So this this tells you um, <laughs> the complexity of my memory when it comes to like early aught Tea Party candidates and Congress people. He was a single term congressman elected as a Tea Partier. He has a conservative talk show. And what I think is really interesting about his primary run against Donald Trump is that he's not in the mold of a Bill Weld or a John Kasich, this sort of old guard or moderate. I mean, he really is a conservative firebrand, and he is saying he doesn't represent us. Do I think he will successfully primary the president? No. But do I think that he can speak to the base in a way that might chip away at some of his support? Perhaps. And history shows that presidents who are primaried often don't get reelected. 
So if some of the challenge and some of the fight comes from inside the Republican Party, even if it's Joe Walsh, I'm here for it. So thanks for taking one for the team, Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh has deeply problematic views. He has Mm -hmm. said terrible things. He also is apologizing early and often for many of those things. (laughs) And it's not that I want to be supportive of Joe Walsh. I don't. No. Nothing about this makes me think, oh, I need to get back in on the Republican primary here. (laughs) I so deeply respect Bill Weld. I so deeply respect the way Bill Weld has reacted to this. Bill Weld is saying, yes, please get more people into this race. It is important to stand up to this president and challenge him. And so I just, before our emails explode, want to acknowledge neither of us think that Joe Walsh is a model of character. No. Or the person who should be the Republican nominee or should be the president. We do not. No. Also... I'm happy for anyone who says, I was wrong. I contributed to a problem. And now I'm going to go through the awful exercise of challenging Donald Trump because it is going to be ugly and mean-spirited. And Joe Walsh, I think, has an opportunity for some atonement here and taking that to the mat with Donald Trump. And I do think the media is going to pay more attention to him because he's more interesting than Bill Weld. And I think that is a shame and a testament to everything that's wrong with the way we cover politics in this country. And it's also where we find ourselves. Yep. I would like to compliment Bill de Blasio. The Air Force is reporting a very concerning increase in suicides. At least 78 airmen have died by suicide since May at a single Air Force base in South Carolina. Oh, gosh. Bill de Blasio was asked about his support for the troops and how he would address mental health in troops, given that New York City police officers have a higher than average rate of suicide. Mm -hmm. And I thought that his answer, which occurred during a CNN town hall event, was thoughtful and helpful. And what I really appreciated was how far Bill de Blasio went to normalize mental health challenges. He said one in five Americans today are struggling with a mental health challenge. And mental health challenges are not character flaws, but part of human life. And I think that kind of discussion is important. I think it cannot be said enough. I appreciated the way he responded to that question and the gravity of his response. Next up, we are going to have our policy discussion about the border crisis. We hope everybody's had a chance to listen to last Friday's episode where we tackled the five things you need to know about the border crisis. Now we're going to share more of our opinion on what's going on down there. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. On Friday, we shared five things we think you need to know about the current border crisis. And today we want to get into where we think that crisis is headed. As we do that, we received a question from a listener about how immigrants are treated once they're in the country. And I think, again, it's important to make a distinction between legal immigrants and people who are undocumented and have not gone through a legal immigration process. So Elizabeth said that when she's in conversations about immigration, she hears, well, these are people who came here illegally and are getting free health care, while hardworking people are paying a lot of money for health insurance. And Elizabeth says she tries to bring up that if we as a society want inexpensive food, 
pretty much only immigrants will pick our food, process our food, wash our dishes for low pay. Do they not have a right to health care? She keeps pushing. Who is picking your strawberries and spinach? Are you willing to pay more to represent the true cost of our food? I don't even know where to look for facts to dispute this, so I end up with emotional points. I understand the frustration with high health care premiums, but I don't think immigrants are the main cause of that. So let's do a little overview of health care and immigration. People who are in the United States illegally generally cannot receive Medicaid or Medicare, cannot enroll in insurance through the Affordable Care Act's marketplace, and children who are here illegally do not qualify for CHIP. That said, six states and the District of Columbia have expanded Medicaid to cover children up to the age of 18, regardless of their status, and 16 states cover pregnant women based on income, regardless of their immigration status. We also have the National Association of Community Health Centers, which are federally funded, and these centers provide care to anyone, regardless of their insurance and their ability to pay, and they don't ask people about their citizenship. They just provide care. So there are people who are undocumented receiving primary care and prescription drugs on a sliding scale of fees in some of those centers. We don't have good data about it because they simply don't ask because it's not their purpose to ask. So I think it's generally untrue to say undocumented people are running around looting the healthcare system. The data that we have tells us that actually undocumented people are less likely to seek out healthcare services because their fear of how that will impact their ability to stay in the United States. There are some options available to them, but not very many and certainly not many that feel safe and accessible. I hear this approach to the argument from my family members who live in California. They're very passionate. And the the thread of the conversation is we can't let all these people flow across the border. And what we covered on Friday is there is an uptick, particularly in women and children and family units, coming from the Northern Triangle and flowing into our country. And what I hear from them is we can't let this increase of people just come here because there's not enough for us. And that's what you're hearing in the healthcare debate. And that's what you often hear when you talk about immigration broadly or specifically the crisis at the border. It's this, we can't even take care of people here. Why would we let more people in to take care of? And so I think we have to acknowledge that emotion We have to say, I hear you. I hear you. And I understand why you feel that scarcity. I'm very passionate about income inequality. I understand that it's a problem. I could not agree more that the cost of health care is too high for ordinary Americans. I believe that the economy is changing fundamentally in ways that are leaving people behind. I get it. I see it and I acknowledge it and I agree with you. But I cannot stop thinking about that moment in the big short where Steve Carell's character looks at the screen and says, nothing's going to change. And in a few years, we'll do what we always do, which is blame the poor and blame immigrants. Do you remember that moment in that movie? I do. And I think, let's not do it again. Y'all, let's not do it again. That's not the problem. The problem is not that the percentage of whatever we're talking about, employment, health care, housing, is getting eaten up 
by immigrants, even in a place with a, like California with a massive amount of diversity and a higher percentage of immigrants. When you look at the share of wealth in America, it's getting eaten up disproportionately by the top 1%. So if you're worried about that, if you're concerned about our processes and our systems and that ordinary Americans are getting left behind, let's not repeat this historical cycle we take over and over and over again, which is punching down. Because the reality is a flow of labor from our southern borders has always been good for our job market, for our economy, even for our health care. In Maine, they're dealing with a massive crisis in elder care because there is not enough labor to take care of the aging population. That is something an immigrant population could help with. We drove down the Pacific Coast Highway when we were in California, and we saw fields of people bent over picking produce, migrants from our southern border picking our food. And that labor comes cheap, which means our food is cheap. Now, we can have a conversation about that. But the idea that it's all these economic problems are the fault of people suffering just as much under this economic system without power in our economic system is so crazy to me. So I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that fear. You know, calling people dumb for feeling like there's not enough to go around or calling them racist or ignorant, although there is absolutely a racial angle to this, is not helpful. It's just not going to get us anywhere. We all feel it. We all feel that squeeze. And so let's just work through that we're on the same side here and we all want enough and we all want affordable health care and we all want our kids to do better than we do. And we're just disagreeing about the source of the problem. The George W. Bush Center actually has some really helpful statistics for when we find ourselves in conversations about the impact on our economy of immigration. People who believe that immigrants are taking over should probably understand that only about 13.5 percent of our population is made up of immigrants. And that's in line with historical norms. It's also the case that immigrant-owned businesses typically have an average of 11 employees. So that is Mm. expanding the economy. Recent immigrants are more likely to have college degrees than native-born Americans and are more likely to have advanced degrees. 7.6% of immigrants are self-employed compared to 5.6% of native-born Americans. And they Mm. founded more than 40% of Fortune 500 companies. So immigration is really good for the economy in the long term. I was reading a bunch of articles about migration patterns in Europe. And a thread running through those articles, many of which I'll link in our show notes, is that in the long term, immigration is healthy for any society. And in the short term, it's really hard. And I think that's the way we can have better conversations about this. As you were saying, Sarah, we have to acknowledge some of those fears and some of those insecurities. We also have to take a look at our infrastructure. Part of what caused so much trouble in Germany when Angela Merkel welcomed many refugees from the Middle East is that those refugees were welcomed into the country without infrastructure being in place to actually help them once they were there. 
you can't just take in a million new people without being prepared for a million new people, regardless of where they came from or why they're coming. And so I think a big key to having a different kind of conversation, especially about refugees, is saying, instead of how do we keep them out, how do we responsibly bring them in? And there are questions to sort out there about what benefits they receive and where they receive those benefits from and who funds it. But I think those are problems we're able to solve as a country if we can take our eyes off, let's crack down, let's keep people out, let's make it harder and harder for them to come, let's try to dissuade them from coming, and and more conversation about how do we safely bring people here so that when they come, they present with fewer healthcare crises. And then what do we need to support them to ultimately gain this net benefit to our society and economy through their presence? Since I'm in a California state of mind, I'll just keep on this thread. I do think you see that struggle and that strain in the state of California. Look, we just got back there. And I said it both of our dates. California as a state reminds me of that moment in A Christmas Story where the dad's working on the plugs after the electricity is blown. He says, there's just one too many. There's just one too many of everything in California. (laughs) People, cars, houses. Like, it's a very populous state. And a lot of that has to do with immigration. And I understand how that can, you know, the more there are of us and the closer we have to live together, the harder it is for everybody. You know, this, this human experiment and diversity that America is in the middle of is really new. We're doing something that is hard. It is hard to live in close proximity to people different than you. It just is. And that's, we need to acknowledge that. It's hard on our infrastructures. It's hard on our culture. And that's the other aspect of this that I hear running through threads of conversation when I talk about the border crisis is they're going to change us. And that's true. They will. As every other wave of people have changed America. And aren't we glad? I like America. I like that we created Hamilton and Taco Bell and all these beautiful parts of our country and our culture that came about because we rubbed up against each other. I love that. But it is hard. And you can see how hard it is with people who are struggling to understand what does this mean for me? Does it mean how the way I am is no longer okay? That's what I hear a lot in cultural conversations around immigration and politics in general, which is it feels like you're saying how I am is no longer okay. That if I accept this new wave of change, it means I get left behind, not just economically, but culturally. And that's difficult. And we have to acknowledge that. And I I don't want to go down this road where what we're saying is, oh, be sympathetic to the people with anti-immigrant views. (laughs) Because that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that this journey we're walking together as human beings and as a country has struggle built into it and saying 
if you're a good person, you welcome everybody, and that's the end of the conversation, is not realistic. And it, it doesn't further our goals of making this a welcoming place. I mean, I think when you, when you have more resources and infrastructure to welcome immigrants, you see a really different outcome, right? Like you read these stories about small towns and the flyover parts of our country who are really changed in positive ways by an influx of immigrants. And think about it. I mean, they just have more space and more infrastructure and more resources and more need to welcome. I've seen this in my own hometown. And I think they can, we can see a path forward in some of these places where we are more thoughtful about if we are seeing an influx like we are at our border, how can we do exactly what Beth is describing? How can we do this smartly? How can we think about the ways in which this will stress our system so that, so that we don't push people into that scarcity mindset where they're so afraid and where they start lashing out in hateful and violent and harmful ways? We just, it's not that we're saying that's okay or be sympathetic to it, but we are saying that is a risk that we should anticipate and be prepared for. I learned a lot about housing in California while we were there. She picked out a really beautiful mansion on the Balibu Coast. It's only $45 million. It's a but steal. But it fit all your needs. It's a steal. The lack of affordable housing in California is a problem for California citizens. And it is another, I think, data point in thinking about how does a state that's already strained take in lots more people? And I think part of the answer here is that California and Texas and Arizona cannot do this by themselves. Right. The rest of the country has to step up. And I think there are ways for this to be really good for the rest of the country. All politics is about prioritization. So I think about the area that I live in where we have a lot of jobs that we cannot fill. And... There are people in eastern Kentucky who could do those jobs and do not have enough jobs where they live. The problem with connecting the jobs that we have in northern Kentucky to eastern Kentucky is an absence of good transportation. It is also true that many people in eastern Kentucky do not want to leave eastern Kentucky. It is their home. And unlike refugees, they have the option to stay in their homes. So I think about how good immigration could be for Kentuckians, because if we prepared our area for an influx of refugees, and we'd have to think carefully about how many we could accommodate responsibly at one time. But if we prepared for an influx of refugees, what I think would happen is investment in transportation infrastructure that would benefit people in eastern Kentucky and northern Kentucky as well. I think it would result in more of our jobs being fully staffed, which would mean even more economic investment in this area. I think it would result in greater diversity. And we have a foundation of diversity to build off of because of the presence of some Fortune 500 companies in Cincinnati. And so I think we're a really good place to do some work on our infrastructure and then invite people here. If we're going to do that, We need to think about safe legal modes of transportation for them to come and how that process gets administered and how we connect them 
people coming into the community to the community, because this is a hard place to break into. I grew up in Western Kentucky. It has taken me over a decade to feel like I live in Northern Kentucky for real, (laughs) because I didn't go to high school here, and all my family is not down the road. And if it's hard for me, I cannot imagine what it would be like if I were coming here from Guatemala. But we could do this, and it could be really good for our community if we did. That is a complete mindset shift from let's erase reasons that people qualify for asylum. Let's make them wait in Mexico. It's just a different way. But if we face down the reality, as we started to talk about on Friday, that the United States is just getting a taste of what the rest of the world has known since the early 2000s, and that is migration is a part of our future. People are going to have to move. We can invest in that infrastructure and do this really well, I think, in ways that really benefit our country. Additionally, I think we have to invest in diplomacy, going back to our first segment, because if you truly want to stem migration, a lot of what you have to do is stabilize regions and end wars. And so all the investment that we make in our military, I think some of that needs to be rerouted to our diplomatic efforts across the globe, and to our foreign aid. And Americans hate thinking about foreign aid. I don't know why we would rather spend upwards of $700 a day detaining people in facilities not built for them in Texas versus the much cheaper task overall of trying to give money to countries to help them be places where people can live. Growing up, I feel like the story I was taught about America is that we tackled challenges and led the world, and we had been rewarded accordingly. (laughs) That's a good encapsulation. That's a really good—that is exactly how I have always felt about America, and I appreciate you synthesizing it so clearly. And what I'm realizing is that— Not surprisingly, that's a bit of an incomplete narrative. (laughs) And what has really happened is, yes, it is true, a lot of the innovation that has changed the world and changed the economy came from Americans, whether it was electricity, whether it was the telegram, even if we didn't discover it, even if we were building upon the scientific knowledge of other parts of the world, man, can we scale We're good at scaling. That's what we can do in America. We scale up real well. And do you know why? Because we are a place of asylum, because we welcome people openly, because we always talk about on this podcast that America is an identity, not an ethnicity. And so, yes, part of that story is the innovation and the inventions of Americans, but the bigger part of that story is waves of immigrants who came over and helped us scale at great personal cost because we have not ever been particularly welcoming. We open, but we're not particularly welcoming. And you see that with railroads and the labor of the Chinese, and you see that with the telegram and electricity and industrialization and the labor of people from Southern Europe and Western Europe, and you see that even in the revolutionary days with the labor of the Scottish and the Irish. 
there are big, big changes that happen. And we scale and thrive in the face of those changes because of immigrants. And we have to see that. We have to see that that's part of our story and that's part of our values. And that is part of the success of America. You know, Sarah, one of our very early conversations as we can as we reconnected when we started the podcast, I was complaining about something minor in my life. And then I did that thing where you apologize for complaining about something minor in life because there are much bigger things going on in the world. And you said to me, you know, to quote Dr. Phil, just because if your leg's broken in the hospital and the person next to you has cancer, it doesn't make your leg not broken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that is a helpful path to talking about the fact that Americans struggle with being welcoming. Because on the one hand, when you say it's really hard to accept big structural changes in society and it's really stressful on our in infrastructure and our communities to have an influx of lots and lots of people at one time, that's kind of the broken leg compared to the cancer. When you think about the journey people take to get here and how dangerous it is and the conditions they were living in before they got here and how scary it is to come into a place where you don't know anyone and you're just trying to make a better life for your children, it feels ridiculous to some people to have any sympathy for Americans struggling with these changes compared to the people who are coming here. But their leg is broken, you know, and we have to acknowledge that and, and do our work to heal it if we're going to make any progress here. And I think what you're saying, Sarah, is if we look down the road long enough, we can see that we're good at that over time. We can do this. Think about how many people were successfully resettled following the Vietnam War. There are historical examples showing us that when we try to figure out these problems, it scales up in a way that benefits everyone. There's one more thing I wanted to talk about in terms of I think a mindset shift that would help us moving forward, and that is working with our partners to have some common asylum policies. It's clear that countries all over the world are interpreting what it means to seek asylum differently, that there are different incentives for going to different places. You know, we get a lot of questions about that first country principle. Why don't people stay in Mexico instead of coming to the United States? Etc. And I do think working with our global partners on migration as a general principle is really, really important. I think it would help Europe to create more common asylum policies. And I think that we should spend a lot of time with Mexico and Canada in particular thinking through what it means to seek asylum in North America and how we cooperate with one another and how we help each other. And I don't think that that comes through the sort of threats and pressure that the Trump administration has applied to Mexico as much as places like the G7, where you can sit down as partners and figure out what benefits all of our countries as we deal with these problems that are going to keep knocking on our doorsteps because of our geography. These problems and struggles that we face with shifting migration patterns and that we have faced historically before in the United States. The reality is paradoxical, that it is hard to do what we do in America, to have a place that is an identity, not an ethnicity. It is hard, and it is also incredibly powerful. 
it's not just the scale of labor, although I think that is a huge part of it that has made America successful in the face of dramatic changes in our global environment. It's that if you bring together people who are different from one another, they are going to see the problems more completely and they're going to see solutions not available to groups that are just the same. Diversity is a strength is not just a pithy catchphrase. It's true. We've all been in rooms where somebody says something in a way that illuminates a solution in a way you never would have thought of because you didn't have that experience. And we are always better because of that. It's hard, but it's also an incredibly powerful experience. And to think that somehow being born in America makes us superior, that the luck of birth and geography or even a culture would make us the single story behind America's success is so short-sighted. It is, it is deliberately short-sighted because it is much more complicated than that. And I would be brokenhearted, and, and not just because it's not reflective of my values, but I have three little boys who I want to grow up in an America that continues to thrive and succeed. And I think if we abandon immigrants, if we use intimidation and violence and human rights abuses at our borders, it will hurt us in the long run. It's not just wrong and heartbreaking and an abandonment of our values. It will cause us to fail. It will stop this source of such strength in our country's history. And I don't want that for myself or for my kids or for the globe. And I think we have to really think about the stories we tell ourselves about America and its successes and what America stands for and why it has succeeded in the past as we face these increasing flows of people from all across the world. Because, you know, like Beth said, it's not going to go anywhere. It's never gone anywhere in the source of human history, and it's certainly not going to go away in the face of climate collapse. So we have to think about how we're going to do this, not whether or not we're going to do this. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I'm thinking about Andrew Luck and the Indianapolis Colts. Have you seen this story? I have. I watched a part of his very emotional press conference. So emotional. He basically came forward and said, I'm retiring, even though he has had a lot of success. But he said, I'm in this cycle of injury and pain and rehab. And I told myself if it continued, I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, I think he has like a $48 million contract. And he's walking away. He's prioritizing his health and his happiness and how he wants to spend his days. And I, and it's got to be hard for somebody who's dedicated that much of their life to football. But I thought it was such a powerful story, such a beautiful manifestation of what we often talk about on this show, which is a cultural shift in what it means to be successful. And I just I was so impressed. I'm impressed too. I can't imagine how difficult this decision was for him and his family and the community around him, especially given that he hasn't gotten universal support. You know, there are certainly people who feel entitled to his continued 
I don't know, sportsmanship. I don't even know. Which I, is I, gross. I, He's not a product. He's a I person. I struggle. Yeah. I struggle to understand this. I struggle with football generally because as Word. much as my husband loves it and I understand that it brings people joy, I just feel like we know so much now about the long-term consequences of it. Mm-hmm. And I am very impressed with this re- really young person's decision mm-hmm. to think about the long term of his life instead of the profit that he might make by continuing to punish his body in this way. You know how we just had a very extensive conversation about how we can't shame people into changing their minds about hard things. Are you wishing to I'm shame push, people about football? I'm a, yeah, I'm going to push pause <laughs> on that just for a just for a hot second because I don't struggle with football and I don't know why anybody else would either. Now, I, that's not true. I've never liked football. I don't really care about football. So it's real easy for me to be like, hey, everybody. We're done with football now. The only reason I feel more comfortable taking a very strong stance on that is my husband has loved football for most of his life. Y'all, there's a line about ESPN in our wedding vows I wrote to him, okay? It was huge, and he doesn't watch it at all anymore. Like, he was like, I just, I can't. I just can't. It's like lost all appeal to him. I mean, like, we watched the Super Bowl. I'm actually, that's not even true. I didn't even watch the Super Bowl this year. And so I just, I'm ready for us to move on, and I hope. People being brave, like he is, and saying it's not worth it, will help us get there. I do. I'm not even trying to lie. What are you thinking about outside politics? Admittedly, this is politics adjacent. But it's 2019. What is it? <laughs> so it's football. Hell. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about two experiences I had at the airport this week. I love my home airport. Nothing like this has ever happened to me there before. But I want to talk about this because I think it's just a reminder of what it's like to be a woman every day. And Mm -hmm. I find those stories very helpful when they're shared on Twitter, for example. So here you go. I drove to the airport super early Thursday morning to fly out to California. It was raining hard and it was very dark when I got to the airport. And I was exhausted from driving in the rain about 20 miles and just kind of shaken up by that experience. And I pull into a long-term parking lot and I roll down my window and there's a person sitting there who I'm expecting to just hand me a ticket and tell me which numbered row to pull my car into. And instead, I get kind of jokey, did you just come here to see me? A lot of sweethearts park this way so that you won't get too wet because we wouldn't want your makeup to run. And just kind of holding me... As long as possible without telling me where I could park my car. The word you're looking for is hostage, but yes. And so I was really shaken up by that. I was surprised by how shaken I was. I felt disgusting. It took me until I got to California to kind of shake that off and get into the moment. And then when I got home very late last night. So again, it's dark outside. I'm traveling by myself. I'm on a bus to go back to my car in this same parking lot. And the driver of the bus let way too many people on, and our luggage was stacked up really uncomfortably and probably in a way that wasn't the safest. And it's just crowded, and it's, again, really late at night. Everybody's tired. And he closes the door to the bus and he has all of our tickets saying where we've parked in his hands. 
And he shoves the tickets in the face of this woman sitting at the front of the bus. And she looks at him like, why are you giving me these? And he goes, put them in order. (gasps) Stop it. And she said, what? And he said, put them in order and hand them back to me. No. And so... The guy sitting next to her took half of them, and together they did it, and he kind of laughed about it, and the rest of the guys on the bus kind of, like, were rolling their eyes and and just annoyed with the driver for all the circumstances. But I could see on her face that she felt exactly the same way that I felt with the sweetheart, did you come here to see me situation. Oh, my God. Burn it down. Hashtag burn it down. And it just worked out that all the men got off the bus in the first rows and the three people left on the bus at the end were women. And the woman who this happened to looked at me and said, how far are we from your car? Like, we we just all got concerned because suddenly we weren't just business travelers like everybody else on the bus. We were women traveling alone. At the mercy of this person driving the bus who clearly doesn't have a lot of respect for us. And I looked at her and I said, I'm really sorry. That was incredibly shitty. And she looked at me and she said, thank you. And I thought she was going to cry. And I just mentioned this because I think there's this sentiment often among people I love and care about that this whole Me Too situation has gone too far. And I just want to say, I just don't think it's gone far enough yet Because this kind of stuff is still in the air and it affects us in ways that I can't even describe. And if you think about how awful I felt and she felt and then move that into a space where your body has been violated or your career has been jeopardized, I just I want to keep alive the empathy that we need to have for each other and the recognition that it's not funny, it's not uncommon, and it's not acceptable. And it would have made a world of difference if any of the guys on that bus had said to the driver, that's your job. Don't talk to her that way, you know? And we we just need that. But what's so hard is they see it as an isolated incident. Right. And it's so hard to convey. And that's why Me Too was powerful and still continues to be powerful, in my opinion, and can and can still continue to be powerful, is it gives that bigger perspective. It helps understand, yes, I can see why you would think that someone complimenting my appearance is not bad because you don't understand what it's like to move about in, a, in the world where you are constantly worried about your bodily safety and integrity. And so when someone comments on your body, then it is a very powerful, scary reminder that you are vulnerable. I always think about Gloria Steinem talking about the first, because Gloria Steinem is pretty tall. And so the first time she went to Japan, she was taller than all the men. And how that affected her and how she didn't even realize it affected her. And like, oh, my gosh, what is it like to move about in the world where I'm suddenly not intimidated physically by the men around me who consciously or subconsciously use that fear 
to exercise their desires, to just say what they want to say, to do exactly what that guy did on the bus, which is to intimidate somebody and to try to control them to make their lives easier. It's just really hard. And so when you can see, like, this isn't just things that pop up every once in a while for women. This is a constant fight. This is a constant battle. And that has to come from women saying, just like they did with me, too, like, you don't, this is what happens to me. I'll never forget at one time having a conversation with my brother-in-laws about street harassment, and they were blowing us off. They were blowing me off. I was fighting it with them. And then their baby sister said, almost started crying, like, you don't understand. We feel it's scary. And like seeing their the shift in their faces when their sister said, I feel threatened, was really powerful. And that's, I mean, me too can't stop because we're not done. They don't fully understand. You can never fully understand. But to have that constant reminder of the women in your life, like, I struggled with this. I struggle with this. And I still, I've had these experiences you don't even know about. And that can't stop. And look, I think that, There are men who think that it's a victim mindset to have this kind of discussion. And what I want you to know is, like, I travel alone all the time. I have almost an appalling lack of fear about what happens around me. I believe the best in people. There are many times I forget to lock my car or my house, and I I am not afraid. My husband travels for work. I'm alone often. I do not walk around in the world scared of anything. And... When something like this happens where you are not in control and a person asserts that kind of dominance over you, even in a subtle way, it is clear how fast that dynamic can change into something that is truly terrifying. And it puts you in a space that it is hard to get out of. And so I just wanted to share that reminder, not to end the episode on a big downer, but (laughs) to say, can we please stay cognizant of this? because it is still very much a part of our culture. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We will be back with you on Friday. Between now and then, catch the daily news in Sarah's excellent Instagram stories. You can follow along with some deeper stories on the Nightly Nuance on Patreon. And the Nuance Life will be in your feeds tomorrow on Wednesday as we share some listener commemorations. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.